वेलकम बैक टू अटलांटा डायरीज आई एम योर होस्ट एनमा पोपली थैंक यू फॉर ज्वाइनिंग मी इन अटलांटा डायरीज वी सेलिब्रेट यूनिक एंड इंस्पायरिंग स्टोरीज ऑफ ब्रेक थ्रू वुमेन टू हेल्प फ्यूचर जनरेशंस क्रिएट देयर ओन इफ यू वांट टू नो मोर अबाउट अटलांटा और लिसन टू मोर एपिसोड्स यू कैन विजिट माय वेबसाइट www.enmapopli.com यू कैन आल्सो शेयर फीडबैक और सजेशंस देयर My guest today is Pooja Jisrani. Pooja is NASA's first South Asian female flight director and is responsible for managing operations for all human space flight programs including the International Space Station. Pooja dared to go where very few women had gone. I'm sure her story will inspire more Poojas to explore how rather than question if they can do it. Without further ado, Let's dive into the conversation. Hi Pooja, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's so great to have conversations on topics like these, so it's the pleasure's all mine. First of all, I'm very very proud of you and I'm sure you're going to inspire lots of listeners. You make our country proud. Ah, well thank you, thank you, thank you. Appreciate that. In the interest of global listeners, tell us a little bit about flight director mission control and then from there we'll jump into how your early years shaped your journey yeah absolutely so as a flight director i'm in charge of mission control here in in houston at the johnson space center one of the first flight directors ever was christopher craft a flight director that many people know of is gene kranz you know who's famous for apollo 13 wearing one of those vests We have about 101 flight directors in the history of flight directors, and about 20 something flight directors are in our office currently. Um, and out of those 101 flight directors, I am the 15th female, and then the first South Asian female, um, which is really exciting. And you know, if you really kind of compare the 101 flight directors we have in our office to astronauts, we've had over you know 500 astronauts selected, maybe over 300. Uh, US astronauts so the number of flight directors is much smaller than the number of astronauts we've even had uh, by Johnson Space Center the flight directors specifically that that I work with or you know have been historically at NASA in Houston have been the ones that lead human missions right so ones that did Apollo or the shuttle or now the international space station you know even the Gemini program so all of those programs were led out of mission controls where you'd have a team of people so a bunch of flight controllers they're all in charge of their specific subsystems so, you know some of them might be in charge of the life support system or the guidance navigation and control so how that vehicle flies so each flight controller has their own position and then the flight director is the leader of that room during that time frame so for me personally i've been a flight director for the international space station So the International Space Station is a human laboratory that's been around now for over 20 years. It was built by the shuttle program. It's about the size of a six-bedroom house. It goes around the earth once every 90 minutes, so 17,500 miles per hour. Right now there are seven crew members on board the International Space Station. So three Russian, three US, and then uh, one Japanese. And out of those, they the, those crew members do science every day. they do maintenance of the international space station like i said it's 20 years old they have a lot of objectives they have to go outside the door sometimes to deploy new solar arrays or fix hardware that's broken and so this space station is managed by my flight control team in Houston and like i said it's called the international space station because it is international so not only do we have you know our japanese friends and our russian friends who are obviously on board the space station 
PlayStation with us right now. But we also have the European Space Agency that participates as well as the Canadian Space Agency. And so with all of us combined, we run this national laboratory that does really great science for us. And really the point of the space station is to do this great science so that we can continue to go back to the moon, you know, go on to Mars, et cetera. And so that's really what I do day in and day out. Flight directors work, you know, nine hour shifts. So that's why there's a team of us that do this work. We're in charge of all these vehicle dockings or undockings, or we have to get away from a debris that's coming our way. So there's a lot of critical items that we do each day. No two days are the same, but yeah, that's the role of a flight director. This is really fascinating. And I think you've helped us understand and given a lot of context, and this is going to make the conversation more fun. And I'm sure lots of people have lots of questions. So let's start with the first one, Pooja. One of the youngest flight directors is what I'm assuming, right? Uh, one of the younger, I wouldn't say the youngest. There have been people that have been um, younger than me that have been selected, but I think I entered the flight director office at a good part of my career. I would say pretty middle of the road or on the younger side, correct? Okay. Thanks to you, I have seen hidden figures. I have gone and watched Apollo 13 and I saw Martians on my flight from India this time. So I think I totally can understand and only admire you more and more for your role. What really inspired you to get in this role and talk to us of your journey from flight controller to flight director? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, just generically, my love for space actually started when I was really young. My father was really into space growing up. I think, you know, he was of the generation. He was born in 1952. So around all the, the conversations of the moon landing and, and things like that. And so he really saw that stuff firsthand. And I think because of that, he grew up with such a love for space. In India, you take, you know, a similar test, kind of like the SATs. And depending on how well you do, is kind of the fields you end up in. And my dad always wanted to do engineering, something, and so he could do space. And for him, he ended up scoring really high marks that his parents really pushed him to go do medicine, you know, because that's a high proud moment for most Indian parents if, if their kids are going into medicine. And he ended up doing orthopedic surgery, which is really mechanical if you think about it, you know, bones and, and doing a knee and hip replacements kind of come down to the core of engineering. And so I kind of just grew up with him sharing a lot about space and what he knew. My mom, on the other hand, is a very creative person. She's an artist. She went to JJ School of Art in Bombay, has beautiful artistic ability, and you know, taught art when I was a kid growing up. And so my parents actually really didn't pressure me one way or the other to turn into an engineer. I think my dad now looks back and is, you know, very proud of the career choice that I had and the fact that I'm a flight director. He's my, you know, my number one fan. He's the one that watches NASA TV in the middle of the night if I'm on, on that channel because some docking is going on. And my mom will, of course, watch as well. But I think that that love for space really just came from sharing that with my dad. So when I was going to college, you know, a lot of my friends were wondering if I was going to do interior design or marketing or something more creative because I also have that side and ability. But I was like, oh, I think I'm going to try aerospace engineering. And I've always loved space. And if I don't cut it or if it doesn't work out for me, you know, I'll find something else uh, that does. And then I, I went to UT, University of Texas at Austin. It was a school down the road from us, so easy and an and easy place to go to and feel comfortable. And I really poured my heart and soul into aerospace. And I'd always been a pretty good student in high school, but I think I really excelled in college. I, I honestly got better grades in college than I even got in high school. 
Um, more so because I think I had a mission. I wanted to work at NASA and I was going to do whatever it took to kind of get that job. So I worked really hard. I ended up getting an internship at NASA. One of the subcontractors at the time, United Space Alliance, who was a prime subcontractor for the shuttle program, was at a career fair at the University of Texas. And they just had a booth set up. And I, you know, I walked by with my resume in my hand and said, you know, I want to work at NASA. What opportunities do you have? And the manager there said, well, I actually work in mission control. Why don't you come by and interview with me? I was like, I would love that. So I went and I did the interview. And then I ended up getting my first internship and, and went to NASA for that summer. And when I was there for the summer, what I didn't end up realizing that I signed up for was that I actually ended up being in charge of the carpet changes and mission control that summer. So not actually being a flight controller or any of those things that I'd seen in the movies. It was just, hey, the carpet needed to be changed and they needed someone to do the logistics for that. So I spent the entire summer doing that kind of work. And at the end of the summer, I told my boss at that time for the internship that, you know, while I really like this and I appreciate the opportunity getting my foot in the door, I really want to be one of those people sitting in those chairs, um, being a flight controller. Like, how do I do that? And then he was very, you know, sweet to me and said, you did a great job, though this wasn't exactly what you wanted to do. Let me get you in touch with the right people. So he got me in touch with the right people on the flight control side. And my next internship after that, that next year, I came back as a flight controller. You know, that next summer doing flight control work, and I just loved it. So I knew when I was going to graduate from UT, I was just going to come back and take a full-time job in flight control. Went back to college, graduated, and got a full-time job in flight control. And then did that for many, many years. I was a flight controller in the ADCO group, which is Attitude Determination Control Officer, which is the flight control group that actually is in charge of how the space station flies. So how it goes around the earth, when it has to do dockings or undockings, how it does that. So I really just worked my way up. And that's how I ended up at NASA and really just enjoyed my many years in flight control. Looks like flight control was very deliberate and, you know, it was clearly, like you said, it was your mission. So were there any surprises and what was the most exciting part? Yeah, I think for me, you know, though I was a good engineer in college, I think it was more important for me to work in an area that was more operational based. And so instead of being behind my computer and doing coding and things like that, that really wasn't my forte. My forte was really talking to people, getting teams together. And I knew that someone had told me that operations was the place to go do that. And I think I ended up finding sort of a branch in engineering where I could actually thrive with my engineering degree. I think if you'd stuck me in a lab, I probably would not have done so well. And so what was surprising to me really is the fact that I found an engineering job that wasn't true, you know, wasn't so true to engineers. When people look at me, they don't think I'm an engineer because to me, there's no definition of an engineer anymore, right? There's so many different ways that you can apply your skill set. And I think the biggest surprise to me was finding a job that I just really, truly enjoyed that wasn't just a lot of number crunching because to me, that wasn't where I wanted to be. Well, for others, that's the perfect place because that's what they're really good at. And then I was surprised to find a job that really fit my nature, really who I was as a person, and combine that with engineering. That's interesting. Define for us who is Pooja as a person and what part of your personality really made you just the perfect fit for these roles? Yeah, I think, I mean, people ask me to define myself. I always think about how I'm a daughter, I'm a mother, I have a six-year-old now that's in first grade, I'm a wife, 
you know, I married my high school sweetheart. I met him when I was 15 and 16. So we've been together now for 22 years. I'm definitely a person that needs social interaction. So during the times of COVID where everybody was virtual or on Zooms, that wasn't where I thrive. I definitely thrive in a in a social interaction environment, person to person, face to face. I also really love art and pretty things and you know, decorating my house and creating the, the perfect invitation for my kid's birthday party. You know, all those kind of creative things that my mother really shined on me when I was a kid, you know, wrapping a present with a pretty bow and a pretty name tag. Like I love all of those things equally to engineering. And, you know, I really pride myself in really keeping relationships. To me, relationships are the number one important, most important thing in my life, not only in work, but also at home. And so continuing to build those, be there for people, that's always a priority for me. Looks like you're a perfect mix of both mom and dad, you know, <laughs> left brain and right brain, relationships and technology. So how did that then um, help you prepare for this flight director's role? Yeah, so for me, flight director kind of came not as a goal, right? So I went to college saying, well, I'm going to do aerospace engineering and NASA sounds great. And how do I work with somewhere in the aerospace industry that's not in the defense side, right? There's a lot of aerospace jobs that are more on the defense military side, which I think are, are great uh, for those who like to do it. But that was just not something that I wanted to do. I wanted to do the astronauts going to the International Space Station, going back to the moon, et cetera. So I knew that as a goal when I was leaving college. But I think once I got to NASA, I, I didn't have next step goals. I really didn't. I was just kind of busy with myself working in flight control, really enjoying it putting my heart and soul into it just because I liked it. So flight director, kind of, I ended up kind of stumbling on that in a way where other people were telling me, hey, have you ever considered being a flight director? Me? No, no, I've never. Because like I said, flight director is a very sought after job and there's such limited people that have been selected and people that have applied many times. I mean, there's people in our office that have applied five or six times and, you know, got it on their sixth try because this is something they you know always wanted to be. For me, it was other people saying, Pooja, have you thought about this? I think you would be great at this. And then somebody else a few months later, Pooja, have you thought about this? Or then the application came out and again, people are, Pooja, are you going to apply? You should, you should think about applying. And I think after multiple people kind of putting that in my ear, it made me think about, okay, well, let me see if I should apply. And so the first time when an application came out to apply to be a flight director, I had just kind of completed a lot of my senior assignments in my other roles. And I just felt like I wasn't ready. I was not a mother at that point. And surprisingly enough, when that application closed was the day I found out that I was pregnant with my daughter. And I had decided not to apply that time because I just felt like I was not ready. I felt like I needed a little, little bit more of experience space. I had just gotten selected to be a CAPCOM, which is a capsule communicator, which is the person that talks to the astronauts on the space station. And so I said, you know, I should give myself the opportunity to go do this role that person sits next to the flight director. I'll learn a little bit more about what the flight director does. And either way, I don't. I just don't feel like I'm ready. So then the application came out just a couple of years later. And again, people are like, are you going to apply? And so I kind of finally decided that I was going to apply. I said, okay, I'll apply. I'll apply this one time. Give it my all. I'll talk to all the people that I need to talk to. I'll do my homework. I'll give it everything I have for this one-time interview. If I don't get it, 
that's okay. Cause then they don't like me or they don't need me. Or maybe if they give me some real feedback where I can go work on that, maybe I'll reapply again. But if there's not really any tangible feedback or something that I can work on, then I'll just say, this is my one and only shot. I tried, I didn't get it. And I'll move on with life and go do other things. Cause this is not my dream job. And I went in, in 2018 and I put in all my effort and I ended up getting selected. And I was one of six that got selected. So it was three males and three females. And I was overjoyed. Like I remember when I first found out, I called my dad, I called my husband and you know, my dad was so happy because this is like everything he's ever wanted probably in his life. And my husband, again, so proud because, you know, I, I'm the 94th flight director. So in the history of space flight to be number 94 is pretty great. And again, the 15th female. And so everybody was super happy for me. But I think for me, I had been so settled with the fact that if I didn't get it, I would be okay because I wanted to go into the interview being authentically who I was. Um, and they were going to select me for me because for me, this role specifically as, as a flight director, when things hit the fan and it's a bad day and the crew's having an emergency, no matter how much training you get, you go back to innately who you are, right? Yes, you use some of those skills that you've been trained on, of course, because that's why you go through the training. But you still go back to who you are, right? How are you going to handle the problem? Do you get nervous? Do you rise to the occasion? And so I wanted to sell to them who I really was, because if they selected me for who I really was and not a pretend version of myself, then when that bad day happens, I could know that they really truly trusted me. And so that's kind of how I went into the interview. And somehow I got selected the first time, which is honestly pretty rare in our office. But now, since I've been there since 2018, I've loved every moment of it. Pooja, like I said, I saw Polo 13 and I saw, call it Gene Grants or call it Ed Harris, right? I was actually imagining you over there. And Polo 13 is a perfect example of only crisis at some level, right? So did those fears come in your mind when you were deciding, are you the right person or not? And if yes, how did then you sort of navigate that you're the right person to deal with such fears? So surprisingly enough, I actually watched Apollo 13 the night before my interview. So we had multiple interviews. And before my first interview, I was like, let's get in the mood. You know, let's see. And though <laughs> it's just a movie, it still just brings back my quintessential, like the, the essence of what being a flight controller is, right? Rising to the occasion when a failure happens. How do you step up to the plate? And so I watched that movie the night before, too, just to get into the mood of, of even though I do this every day, this is my job. Um, and I think... The fear is always there, right? The bottom line is that I am the last person, the decision maker in those crisis events. And there is fear that I would make the wrong decision or the right decision when that time comes for me. You know, I've already been in situations for the space station where I've had to be that decision maker because things have gone wrong and, you know, we need to trade risk. And I was the final person making that decision. But I found confidence in the fact that they selected me for me and that imposter syndrome that you know we hear and talk a lot about still exists it's not like I feel like I am the best flight director that's ever existed no there's no way every day there's not a day that doesn't go by that I don't feel like I do I fit into this do I am I right am I the right person for this role so that imposter syndrome doesn't go away but I think the fact that I felt confident in the fact that they selected me really for me because I put my true self in the interview 
not a version of myself that I thought they would want to select, which is what sometimes a lot of people do in interviews, right? They pretend to be a certain way because they feel like the person doing the job selection is looking for this kind of person. I really didn't do that. I went into the interview very authentically myself saying, these are my pros. These are my cons. I already know that about myself. These are the things I'm having to work on. I've been working on them for 15 plus years. And they still selected me, right? They still picked me at knowing that. And so I think when I go into my shift, I know that they have selected me for me. And, and the only thing that I can do at the end of the day is do my very best, try my best, fight for the crew, fight for the vehicle, make sure everything's safe. And that's what I'll do. And they know that about me. They know that I will give it every last out. I will work the hardest I can until the very end, no matter what happens. And so I think that is what allows me to sleep at night. Otherwise, you'd be nervous going into every shift because you never have any idea what's going to happen. The other piece is that I have a team, right? It's not Pooja by herself. I have a team of flight controllers that work with me. And I couldn't do the job without them. Flight directors have a call sign, a name that they get to assign themselves when they get selected. And so the first few flight directors, you know, Chris Kraft was the first flight director. He, they were red, white, and blue, the first three flight directors to be the American flag for their shifts. And then after that, you've had flight directors be like Infinity Flight or Discovery Flight. They get to come up with their team name. What, what do they want to symbolize for their team every time they work console? For me, I selected the name Unity. I'm called Unity Flight. I'm number 94 Unity Flight. So every time I work console, it says Unity on the board in Mission Control. And it has my patch there. And I selected that purposefully because I, as a flight director, am no one without my team. I cannot do this job by myself. Like if you just put me in Mission Control, <laughs> that would mean nothing. So the unity of what the team really provides, all my flight controllers in Houston, as well as all of my international partners, my Russian friends, my Japanese friends, et cetera, I talk to them on the loops consistently during the shift. So if something were to go wrong or something does go wrong, those are the people that I lean on, right? They're feeding me information to help me make those decisions. So that unity of our team, like I am a flight director because we are all together, was very important to me. So not only the confidence of just truly being myself is helpful, but then also knowing that I have a team to rely on if those scary situations were to happen allows me to sleep at night before each shift. So, you know, this really takes me to a big skill in leadership, which is vulnerability, right? I know ultimately you have to take the decision, but the fact that you talk about unity and the fact that you recognize that it's not Pooja, but it's the entire team. What's your perspective on vulnerability as a skill set and vulnerability and Pooja? How do they sort of... Yeah, come together. Yeah. I've listened to a lot of Brene Brown type work. She actually came and spoke to NASA recently to a lot of the astronauts and I got to be in the audience as well and did kind of a workshop on that kind of stuff. You know, NASA itself is very, tries to take the vulnerability out of all of the systems, right? We don't want the oxygen system to have any vulnerability because we need it to work and we need it to operate and we need it to be bulletproof when we need it. And I think a lot of that lack of vulnerability in our systems has, has sometimes spilled over to people as well. Like we need everyone to be tough and confident. We need everyone to be smart. We need our systems to be perfect. And so you also need to be perfect. And I think though, over the last maybe 10 years and kind of the shift in culture and people talking more open about what vulnerability means, you know, there was a really good conversation when Brene Brown actually came to NASA talking about 
you know, we don't want your systems to be vulnerable. We don't want the spacecraft to be vulnerable. We want that to be perfect. But you as people can show vulnerability because you're human and you're not perfect. And if you show some vulnerability, if you start that, maybe your peers will also show it. And then it kind of kicks off, right? If somebody is able to display it, other people will as well. And so I think that's really been where my eyes have opened on the vulnerability concept of truly just being myself, allowing myself to say, hey, guys, I really have to leave this meeting. It's six o'clock. My daughter has a Christmas performance tonight. And if I miss it, I'm going to be the worst mother to her. But this meeting can happen again tomorrow. And if I'm able to show those kind of things, then maybe other people will also feel like they can say those things as well. So I think kind of learning from that and being a leader in that environment has taught me to just be more openly, authentically myself, because that will allow others to do the same. While I understand that we all have to take the box where, you know, we want to ensure diversity, but do you think women bring a certain skill set, which was always a need and which is really adding more value to organizations today? What's your sense on that? I think so. I think women traditionally have been the nurturers, right? The people that really care, the care and feeding that goes into a group of people. So like the women in the family are the ones that are worrying about what we're eating and how we're going to, what we're going to wear and, and are, you know, that kind of stuff. And I think that, you know, traditional aspect of women really does help in the workforce. I just led a team of very highly productive, successful individuals over the last six months. I was in charge of the International Space Station as the lead flight director. And those people, you know, each day, especially coming out of COVID even more so, would come in for meetings. And I took the opportunity before this assignment started to have one-on-ones with everybody. And I told them, you know, I'm just going to ask you a little about yourself, share about you, I'll share about me. Let's talk about like anything that you guys want to be working on, like any personal growth areas that you have. And then let's talk about setting expectations. What do I expect from you? And what do you expect from me? And I kind of used that conversation with these 30 people individually, honestly, just to get to know them. You know, these expectation pieces from my side and things like that, that was there. And I'm glad I did them. But really just to understand that this person has a sick mother that they're caring for it may be important for them to have to leave early or this person lives in downtown with his group of friends and, you know, just to actually get to know people for who they are. And once I got to know them really for who they were in these just one-off meetings, when our big increment started and we were super busy and everything was a fire, getting to know who they were at get-go, that nurturing aspect, that mother kind of feeling or that woman kind of feeling helped me because I now felt like these were people that were not only my peers or my coworkers, but they were also my friends, right? And so when they would come in in the morning, like, so how is your mother doing today? You know, like, how's everything going at home? Or, hey, did you have a fun night out with your friends this weekend? What all did you guys do? And kind of knowing people on a personal level really, I think, set the tone for my, my team to bring their best to the table. Like they wanted to do everything possible or everything right or work extra hard so that when they came to work the next day, we as a team, like were successful because everybody was now invested not only in the work, which is NASA, of course, but in each other, right? They cared for each other as a team. And so I I really spent the time to try to foster those relationships. And I think that 
I'm not sure, right? I mean, I'm sure a male counterpart could do that equally, especially now that we're talking about all these kind of skill sets more openly. But I think that sort of nurturing or caring side probably comes from the fact that I'm a female. And, and I really, truly cared about these guys as individuals and not as just people on my team. That's very interesting. But I do want to double click on that. Like you said, you know, men might, might ask, might not ask. But the, you know, flip is that there is always a cynical side, which is worried that, hey, next time this whole conversation or baggage doesn't come to the workplace, you know, that my mother's not well and therefore... Can you make me some more accommodations? Did that ever worry you or how did you navigate or manage those kind of concerns? If you don't take people for who they fully are, then you're not going to get a good product. You're just not. And so I think by skirting around those conversations or not wanting that baggage or not caring for that person as an individual, then they don't care for you. Like, why are they going to give you the best product, stay up until midnight to get that code rewritten? Because they have no investment in you either if you're not investing in them. And so I think that for the baggage conversation, I think that's naive in the end because you, you will have a better, in my opinion, you will have a fully better product and a better team if they care to be there, if they're invested in what we're doing. And the only way to get a person fully invested is to care about them as a full person. Because a person is not just what they do for work, right? I am, I just told you a mother, a daughter, all these other things, a wife, and work is a part of my life, but not fully my life. And so I think you have to take your coworkers or your people that work for you, or even your management in a full light as a full person and not just what they bring to the work table. No, that's a very beautiful perspective. Pooja, shifting gears a little bit, share with us one of the toughest moments and how did you rise to the occasion or how did Team Unity together overcome it? Yeah, I mean, I've had a, a been on console for a, month, a bunch of different failures on the International Space Station. One of the most recent ones was there's a few emergencies on the International Space Station that we really safeguard our crew on, which is like if there's a fire on the space station or if there's a deep press on the space station, like if some debris hits the space station and the atmosphere in the space station starts leaking. Um, there's also something called toxic atmosphere. We have some lines on, on the space station that are toxic. So if they ever come into the cabin and the crew were to breathe it or, or have it in their eyes, they would get severely ill. And those emergencies you hope never happen, right? Because they could mean that this crew has to come home or that somebody's hurt. And so most recently we had a, a, a scare where we had some of these emergencies kick off. Um, on one of our SpaceX vehicles that was docked to station. And in the end, it was just kind of like a computer glitch due to potentially radiation or something else. But in that moment, it was an unknown because we were seeing all of the emergencies at the same time. And because we did see that, we had to quickly rise to action to make sure our crew was safe. And our entire team was able to do that. You know, um, We are heavily trained on these emergencies to make sure that we know how to react to them. And you hope they never happen, but you need to be trained for this very bad day. And we did exactly that, right? In those moments, your training really kicks in. Your innate sense of self really kicks in. And the crew was safe and everything ended up you know, working out. We went through a lot of our different procedures and, and got the entire team together. But I, I remember going home that day and I was just, no matter how much I know what to do in those situations just like debriefing it in my head over and over, like, what could I have done differently? What could I have done better? What could I have said, you know, no matter, even if it went perfectly to other people in their eyes, 
is as individuals, no matter when you see those bad days, you always want to grow from them and see how you can react better the next time. Because these aren't robots that are responding. These are humans and, and we react differently depending on the day. You know, did I sleep well the night before? Did I not? But you hope those those bad days don't happen that often. But we have a lot of different, you know, the space station's over 20 years old. There's a lot of failures that are happening. You'll see them all in the news every once in a while when things go poorly. And so, but that's what we do. That's what we're there for, right? We're, our number one priority is to keep our crew, our astronauts safe. And then secondly, the vehicle, you know, safe. And then thirdly, really care for the mission at hand. So if it's any science or any a maintenance that we need to do, that's third priority. So really keeping our, our crew safe and our vehicle safe is number one. That's why we show up each day to work. Given that, uh, you know, your work needs 100% you, and therefore the time that you're not at work, obviously you want to give you 100% you at home. How do you do the balancing act? Like, I'm sure even the day you took up the position, you must have had a lot of conversations, I'm guessing, with family and yourselves. Share with us, how did that play out? Sure. I think the conversation for us at home was really that, hey, this is going to be tough. The spy director job requires a lot, which is why I was kind of happy that I didn't end up applying the time that I was pregnant because it allowed me to go through that part of my life, have a child and a small little baby and still not have the pressures of having this job yet. In the end, when I applied in 2018, my daughter was already two and a half. And so she had you know, gotten out of the baby phase. And so we were ready to kind of jump in and try this out. And I think the balancing act never really ends. I think part of it is when you're at work, you know, you feel bad about the things you're missing at home. When you're home, you feel bad about the things that you're missing at work. And no matter how much I try to master it all, you know, I've tried to master it now for the last few years, it's still an act, you know, it's still a balancing act for sure. I mean, that example that I gave about having to leave a meeting to go to my daughter's Christmas program was real. Like I really had to tell my boss the other day, I was like, I have to leave right now. I have to drive 50 minutes to the other side of town and then be in the chair by six o'clock before my daughter gets on stage. And so I think the most important thing that I found, though, is that, you know, having the support system in place. And so I, I have my parents and my husband, who is amazing at helping me feel like I can do it all, you know, be that superwoman at work and then come home and try to be a super mom. They truly support me. Like my husband truly, yeah, he's a lawyer, very well-to-do lawyer. And he knows that my job has certain aspects of it that I don't control. Like it's 24-7. If an emergency happens, I have to be there. There are things going on. And he understands that. And we had those open conversations before I even applied for the job. And then same, you know, with my parents. They've always, my dad, mom have both supported my career very much so. And so very willing to come and help babysit her, my daughter, if I need the help and that kind of thing. And it goes both ways. And at work also, I'm very open about the fact that I'm a mother and a wife and I have other commitments, but I'm still able to give 110% to my job, right? I, if you need me, I'm here, call me anytime. But it's, I think it's something that you never fully master. You know, for us, I think in the end, there's always sacrifices in some place, in my, in my opinion. So for me, maybe it was the fact that I only have one daughter. We knew that our family of three was good for us and that if we maybe added additional kids to the mix, then it might topple over. You know, this castle that we built might just topple over and we might not make it work. I think for others, the priorities may be different. You know, they have five kids and then they choose to 
pick their family and then step back from work a little bit and maybe come back into the workplace after their kids are older and are more settled. And so I think it's just finding the balance that works for your specific family. So you and your husband and your immediate family, because at the end of the day, you want to be happy, right? You want to come home and not feel stressed out. You want to be content in the choices that you've picked. And I don't know if you can really have it all unless you have, maybe if you have unlimited money, maybe you can have it all, right? Because then you can hire help for everything and do all of that. But then is that really having it all either? Because then you don't have the ability to be with your children or raise your children because now you've hired nannies maybe to take care of. I'm making this up, right? And so is that where you want to be? Um, Who knows? And I think at work too, you know, deciding where your threshold is. Do you want to be the superstar? Do you want to be in charge of everything? Do you want to take a step back in the season of life because you've just had your second child and you want to take a little bit of a break and come back again? when she's a little bit older. I mean, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of ways, but I don't know if there's a lot of answers. And I don't think there's a right answer, I guess, is the bottom line. I don't think there's a right answer on finding the balance. I think each and every one of us working parents does our best day in and day out. And I think it's a consistent challenge that we continue to evolve and grow with. That's a very beautiful way of putting it, you know, and helping people understand that they have to make their own choices and then own those choices. What about fear of missing out at work, Pooja? I mean, looking at, uh, you know, the flight director's role, it's also very exciting. I'm wondering, you must have even sort of experienced times when you did not want to miss out on what's happening at work. Yeah, I, maybe I am not a perfect example of that either, because I most recently, you know, I just did this long six month assignment and thought, okay, I'm going to take a break now. You know, my husband's really been charging at home and my, my family's been helping. And my daughter, you know, in her Santa letter this year, for example, said, you know, dear Santa, please let my mom's work be easy this year. <laughs> and let my dad keep rocking those, you know, lawyer things that he does. So when you read things like that, you're like, okay, well, I'm going to take a break from work a little bit, spend more time with my family. We also bought a new house. So I needed to go um, invest some time into that. So I got off this assignment and said, all right, you know, for three months until December, I'm going to take a backseat, told my bosses and everything, I'm not going to do much. I need to spend more time focusing on these other areas where I haven't been able to do so much. And then, of course, an assignment pops up and they're like, Pooja, we think you're the perfect fit for it. You should go <laughs> do it. And I was like, but I told you I was going to take three months off, you know. And then so I said, OK, you know, and, and then like weighing back and forth talked to my husband again. I was like, I knew I was going to take time off, but now this other things come up. What do you think? And, you know, he's so supportive that he's like, just go do it. Go grab, go grab that assignment. You're going to love it. It's for a SpaceX launch that's happening in February with, with four astronauts. And I get to be the lead flight director for that. Um, he's like, go do it, go do it. You know? And so now did I not get the time off? No, because I've been working on this new assignment, but I have shifted my priorities a little bit. If there's people that are asking me to cover a meeting or go do something else, I remind them that I was supposed to take these three months off and I'm here because I have this one assignment, but that's the only assignment I'm going to work on until January because I need to prioritize my home life a little bit more. Um, but I think the, the right answer or maybe the better answer would be that I didn't take that assignment at all, right? Because that's when you're missing out on the work things, but it's, it, it is truly hard to do that, especially when you in this role get to make such a difference in human spaceflight, it's very hard to pass that opportunity by. But I think if I had come home and my husband had said, 
you know, you promised me this and now is not the right time. I really need you to be helpful more at home. And I would have listened to him, right? And not done that assignment. I think in this case, my husband is great. And so I got, you know, I was able to dive into that role and, and it worked out. But it's kind of reading the temperature of your home and at work and making those right choices for you. Again, it comes down to what you believe is is the priority in the moment and, and what can take the back seat or what can take the front seat. And that changes day for day, sometimes hour for hour. But I'm curious to know, what kind of a conversation would you have with your daughter when she wrote that? And <laughs> Yeah, so she wrote the front of her Christmas card. I just told her that this past year was a significantly busier year for me for work. And we knew that going into my assignment in March. And so we'd had a lot of conversations about that. And so I told her, like, it's never going to be like that again. It's not. I mean, there's not an assignment. Unless I do that specific assignment, it's not going to be like that. So all these other assignments sort of pale in comparison to the amount of work I just did. And, and I think, you know, she understands that. She's now in first grade. So you can have a real conversation with her about work. And I think she also understands that, like, you'll see small things where, well, what are you playing right now? Or what are you doing? And she's like, oh, I'm dressing up because I'm going to work because I have to go to NASA today. And she's like carrying her purses, her laptop bag, and she's going to work. And she's been doing that since she was little. And so I've always kind of, no matter how hard I work, you know, then the back of it my mind or back of my head that, you know, it also rubs off on her that she sees me as a working mother and that maybe that'll help her decide what her goals are for when she grows up and that hopefully I'm a positive influence on being a female in the workplace, right? That you can find your space and you can have a kid and you can have a husband and you can have a life and family and, and do all of those things. Um, but you just have to decide what's good for you. And I think hopefully I'm setting a positive example for her that, though this year was a bad work year, like, please be easier on mom because she had a hard, you know, she had a lot of work this year. Um, that's not my whole life, you know? And there, there are many fun things that we do with her individually to make sure that she feels special and seen as part of our family. Being a good role model is what I'm listening. So, Pooja, from here, I want to sort of double click on that, actually. I think I mentioned to you earlier that why I decided to do the podcast. So I did do like a little research, you know, across women globally. And I had sort of a few questions. And these are questions coming from the kind of conversations which I've had with my clients in the past. So there were certain themes which came out of those conversations. For one, a lot of them said that uh, there aren't enough women role models in the environment. What's your sense on, uh, you know, Two things. One is there aren't enough women. I mean, actually, when I asked them, who's your role model? They really didn't have any any women role models who they didn't have any name to give. And two, uh, they were very, very emphatic statements like women don't support other women. They don't watch out for other women. So what's your perspective and sense on that? Yeah, people always talk about or ask me, you know, how has it been being a woman in, at NASA? Or how is it being the first South Asian woman flight director? You know, did you ever have any stumbles or did you ever feel like people didn't support you? And I feel like for me personally, NASA has always had a culture of supporting everyone. Like, I think I've been very lucky in that because I obviously know that that is not the norm because otherwise these questions wouldn't be being asked of me, right? Like, when is the time where you felt like being a woman set you back? I don't have an answer to that. Like, I really, truly don't. I think at NASA... While it, it absolutely is majority male, or, ha or at least was for sure when I first started, 
more recently, we've been doing a really good job of trying to hire more females. And even when I got selected in the flight director office, for the first time ever in NASA's history, my boss, the lead flight director, was a female. And she was the first ever female in this role, also a mother, also had a son. And so I felt like I was able to really truly be who I was because she allowed me to do that, you know? So I think I've personally been very lucky in I have seen or have interacted with female role models, people that are in higher up positions that are female and have families and are trying to do it all and they're doing it well. But I know that that's not the norm and I know that's not definitely not the norm outside in the industry. I think the whole women supporting women um, is something that each of us are responsible for, right? Like no matter where you are at what stage, so even if you're a new person now in mission control, just got a job yesterday, there's a college kid who is a woman who is looking for a role model. Or if you're a college kid who's doing aerospace engineering, there's a high school student that's trying to figure out if she should do aerospace engineering or not. Or if you're you know, if a high school student, then there's a five-year-old that's wondering if space is for them. So I think it doesn't only start at the higher-ups, right? I think there are definitely managers who could be better at including women or supporting women. But I think it goes across the way. And so when people say, oh, I feel like women don't support women, I want to ask them, well, are you supporting women? You know, are you as a woman supporting the people underneath you? Are you supporting that college kid? Are you supporting that high school kid in the same way that you feel like you are not being supported? Because if you support that college kid, then when that college kid now is the manager of NASA, she will remember that she was supported by a person that was in the industry and will remember that she needs to pay it forward, right? And so you can start cultivating that Maybe it's not always up, but it's definitely down that you can impact. For me, luckily, I actually had a mentor who was a female um, who was assigned to me as part of the formal mentorship program. And she was really my role model. She was just a few years ahead of me. She was actually one of the people that wanted you know, to be a flight director at one point, but then ended up not pursuing it. And she actually got this into my head about keep pushing. Why don't you be a flight director? Why don't you think of things? And so it was kind of through those formal mentorship programs that I got a role model, not through, you know, just me seeking out a role model. But I will say like later on in my career, um, I got to a point where there was this one boss of mine who I really just respected. I think she carried herself well. She was able to have good command presence. And I actually just went into her office one day and asked, would you mind meeting with me once a week just to kind of talk through things that are going on at work and give me your feedback? And she was like, oh, no one's ever asked me this before. But yes, absolutely. I would love to mentor you. So I think part of it also can be on the ownership of the person who would like the support to go to those senior people and say, hey, I would love to have a conversation with you once a month. Would you be willing to do that? Because it's very rare that people will say no to those kind of conversations these days. Um, I think everybody wants to have those kind of conversations because we're all trying to grow people. So yeah, I think as a female we need to create that environment for ourselves. And if we're not seeing that, then we need to spearhead it and really reach down or up to fix those issues. And I think I, I got lucky to be in an environment that had already started that conversation so that when I entered, there was already a little bit of a path for me, which was great. I think often we judge others, but we don't take ownership of it, right? What you're saying is you take ownership. If nobody's coming out there, have you asked for help? And that's where we wait for the other person to come and offer help. 
have you reached a point where you're mentoring younger people? Love to know more about your mentorship journey. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I I have some formal mentees that I mentor regularly. And then I also kind of always keep an open door. So for people that ever work with me, I'm always like, if you ever need anything, call, reach out to me. You know, we can, I can always find 30 minutes on my calendar and we can sit down and chat. If you ever want to talk about your career goals or where you're going next, you know, I really didn't know what I was doing next when I was up there in their perspective. So me reaching out to others or other people really reaching out to me saying, I think you should go apply to be flight director shaped my entire life now at this point, right? That's the reason I'm now a flight director because other people helped push me in that direction. And so I definitely have formal mentorship places, but after every assignment, I also very much have an open door policy. Like I just finished that six month assignment with that group of 30 individuals and each one of them, I told them, Hey, put 30 minutes on my calendar and let's debrief how the last six months went. What could I have done better as your leader? And what could you have done better? You know, and a lot of it was positive, but there's always some areas of improvement on both parties. And so I never want to be in the place where I am just giving feedback to others because um, me as Pooja is someone that's growing and evolving as a leader. And I'm going to be doing that for the next many years. So getting firsthand feedback from the people that you work with is very important. And so though they didn't, they were caught off guard when I asked them about myself. I was like, so tell me more about me. What do you think I could do better? They're like, oh, I wasn't prepared for this. You know? And I was like, well, that's okay. You can tell me later, you know? But I wanted the truth, and I, I gave them very truthful feedback as well. You know, there was one guy, for example, who is super smart, but sometimes doesn't give a lot of eye contact when he's speaking. And it's mm. such a minor thing, right? Very minor, because all of his technical abilities were 125%, probably the best I'd seen. But I'm like, but you don't look me in the eye when you talk to me, you know? And I could have kept that information closely and not mentioned it at all to him. But I decided, nope, I'm going to go out on a limb and just tell him. He was like, oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, let me focus on that a little bit more. And I'm like, those little things for people like that can really change their career trajectory. And I feel like that also helped me. There was little things that I needed to work on when I was younger and continued to need to work on or get reminded about. And because people gave me that firsthand feedback of, hey, you should slow down when you're talking. You know, I talk really fast, probably talking fast today. <laughs> that when I'm now in more formal environments, I will take a, take a breath and slow down because that, that I know is just who I am naturally. So things like that. I feel like those mentorship relationships are very important to me and I continue to try to do them, even if it's official or just unofficial because I worked an assignment with you. And now we got to do a 30-minute debrief chat because I forced you to put it on my calendar. <laughs> yeah, these are blind spots. And I think you're not just playing the role of a manager. You're being a coach and a mentor to them in that relationship. Pooja, a lot of my coaches talk about how do I get the rightful seat at the table? Sort of how, to make, how do I make my voice heard? Any perspective, any uh, advice to them on as they pursue these journeys? Honestly, for the full seat at the table, I think in order to gain that respect is your work ethic and your reputation, right? So if you're new, for example, and you just got this role, working really hard to define who you are, how you carry yourself, what your reputation is, because once you set your reputation, it is very hard to change it. If you come in and you show doubt or you show something that people would think differently of you, it is very hard to change that after the fact. 
it's almost easier to work very hard to set your reputation and then have a good reputation than come in, have a bad reputation, and now try to change that to a good reputation. And I think a lot of the having, how can I have a seat at the table conversation is based on how people view you, right? Like, how do they respect you? How do they think of you as a member of the team so that if they think of you as a full member of the team, that they will, you will have a seat at the table because they care about your opinions. They care about your, your voice. And I think in order to do that, the only way at least I have found to have that seat at the table is to proactively be part of the conversation and to show up and to work hard and to set that reputation so that people want you to sit at the table. People want to invite you and it's not finding a way to be at the table, but it's, but, oh, Pooja had that really good thought the other day. Let's make sure she's part of this conversation because she might have an opinion on this. That to me is the only way I have found that has personally worked for me. I know there are probably other methods, you know, that people talk about, especially coaching on, on how to make sure you have a, a seat at the table. But for me, it's always been the work hard and do your best and people will want you as part of their team. People will want you to sit at their table. Since Atlanta Diaries is a place where we can learn and unlearn our definitions of success and achievement, any parting thoughts for aspiring leaders as they transition? I think the comment that you just made about redefining success and what is important, I think has been an eye-opening piece to me over the past few years. We talked a lot about the different facets of a person today and that work is not the only thing that defines a person. And so I think understanding what success is to me is now also different. You know, is success to me having an amazing job and only having an amazing job? Or is success to me having a partner that I love, having a daughter that I love, having parents that I get to see that are healthy? Is it going on vacations and working hard and also playing hard? To me, my definition of success has changed. I think most recently, I actually realized this because one of my senior flight directors that's been in the office for many, many years, retired or, you know, went off to do another job in the private industry. When he left, you know, we were all like, oh, I can't believe you're leaving. Um, We're going to miss you. But two weeks after he left, his job, you know, somebody backfilled his position. Everybody was over it and nobody cared anymore, right, that he had gone. It was not even two weeks, maybe like five days. It was so over and nobody cared. And that poor person, right, had spent his entire life at NASA and doing all these things and was such a great contributor. But in the end, I think your your value is so little because it's just work, right? People backfill you, someone smarter comes in and, and that's the end of the day. But that same thing would not happen at home, right? If you disappeared from your home life, like that loss would be felt for much longer. People grieve their parents or their spouse for years and years and years because um, they miss them, truly miss them in their heart and soul. And so just seeing that in front of my eyes where he, like, I just admired him as a flight director for so many years and he left and nobody cared anymore. He was just gone. I think it gave me perspective that while work is very important, if you make it your life, when you leave, someone's going to replace you and no one's going to care anymore. But at home, it's not, it's not the same, right? It's not the same if you disappear. Just so making sure that balance of priorities. I would say probably 10 years ago, my definition of success would have been being the best at work and being, you know, important or feeling important. 
But I think that definition has just changed for me. And, and I think that I would continue to push on that as leaders can continue to grow as your following continues to be leaders, really understanding where you can be a leader in your environment and where you can really make a difference. And sometimes you can be that change maker at work and make that difference. And sometimes you just can't. But maybe where you can make be that change maker is at home, where you can come home and tell your daughter you love her and that no matter what she does, it's fine. Because we're full people, right? And so I think that definition of success has to come with that now. This has been really helpful, Pooja. Thank you very much again. Awesome. Thank you for having me today. The conversation is always so great and I appreciate the opportunity to be on this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. All my guests have brought their most vulnerable selves on Atlanta Diaries. And even if a small segment of these conversations can help champion the journey of one person, it's going to be really worth it. I do have a request for you. Please share this podcast on your social media and with your family and friends. Our society is constantly evolving and Atlanta Diaries must too. I really appreciate if you can leave your feedback in the form of a review or a rating. These are impactful and rousing stories that need to be shared far and wide. See you next time for another one on Atlanta Diaries.